In America, we have a peculiar estimation of kings and royalty, don't we? We're a country that in our own history, we threw off that tyrannical yoke of the king. Our own flag displays the virtuous superiority of a democratic republic. We want nothing to do with kings in our everyday political life, and yet in our own private lives, in our own entertainment, we have no shortage of kings, do we? That they serve for our own amusement a variety of different ways, whether it be in movies or books, about kings or about royal families, all of that is common. I love a good high fantasy novel, and those novels typically center around kings, good kings and bad kings. Or how many of us tune in, millions of us as Americans tune in when there's a royal wedding or a coronation? Don't act like you don't. I know that you do, that you are, many of you, I'm sure, have been obsessed with Harry and Megan. Is that their names? I don't really follow them. I don't know. It's funny, isn't it? This peculiar attitude concerning kings make it difficult for us to understand the ancient world, I think. It's where kings dominated the landscape. Every kingdom needed no less than two things. They needed a land, and they needed a king. Without a land, people were no better than a vagabond. They were sojourners. They were exiles. And without a ruler, one is exposed and unprotected, ready to be swallowed up at any given moment by a foreign ruler. And the kings, on the one hand, sure, they could be cruel and oppressive, but they could also, in many ways, be a blessing, because one of the primary responsibilities of any king was to provide peace and protection for their people. That's why they were often referred to as the shepherds of their people. Typically, the better things were for the kings, the better things are for the kingdom. That was the world of Israel and David. These were all of the virtues and, and all of the conceptions that were related to kingship that God is going to use to speak of the office that Christ ultimately fulfills as our king. And so if you and I, for just a moment, if we're able to get past our antipathy or our shallow relationship to kingship through entertainment or otherwise, and we see it as more than a mere fiction then we're able to begin understanding the significance of the Davidic covenant. Or as one person put it, the covenant that is the crowning of all other Old Testament covenants. It shows us with greater clarity the person and the work of Christ in the covenant of grace, and it will compel us to rest in Him, to trust that He will fight for us. And that by virtue of his own kingly righteousness, he will bless us with every blessing in his kingdom. That is our king. That's who we want to consider as we consider the Davidic covenant. And with that in mind, I would have you stand for the reading of God's word. We want to read 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. Stand with me to honor the reading of God's Word. 
Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go and do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up a people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. And in all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel. And I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Violent men will afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And in accordance with all these words and in accordance with his vision, Nathan spoke to David. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You can be seated. I want you to recall in Genesis 17 how God expanded His covenant with Abraham to include two things. Included, first of all, a demand of loyalty. You remember that? But then secondly, He included a promise of royalty. God promised Abraham and Sarah, kings are going to come from you. Well, God's royal promise was then, you remember, repeated to Abraham's grandson, Jacob, later renamed Israel. And then in Genesis 49, Jacob focused that promise in an oracle over one of his sons, saying, the scepter shall never depart from Judah. Well, nearly a thousand years later, a man named Boaz, sound familiar? Boaz was from the tribe of Judah. He marries a Moabitess named Ruth. And then Boaz and Ruth have a son named Obed, who then had a son named Jesse, who had a son named David, who was the first anointed king of Israel. And so just as God's demand for loyalty formed the context for the Mosaic Covenant, so His promise of royalty forms the context for the Davidic Covenant. 
But this forms only part of the context. Because in addition to this Abrahamic promise was also Mosaic problems. After redeeming Abraham's offspring from affliction in Egypt, God, you remember, created and formed Abraham's family into a kingdom by ratifying with them a covenant through Moses at Sinai. In the books of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, they all focus on the creation of this new kingdom in the context of a new covenant outside the land. That God again proved faithful to Abraham, faithful not only to bring his offspring into affliction, but to bring them out and back into the land. But Abraham's offspring proved unfaithful to God. When we turn the page from Deuteronomy to the book of Joshua, we see that Moses in the first wilderness generation never set foot in Canaan. And yet God fulfilled his promise to Abraham by leading the next generation into the land under Joshua and Caleb. And so following Joshua in the book of Judges and Ruth, Israel's problems in the wilderness just followed them into the land. But you may remember that generation ultimately didn't disciple the next generation. And the Bible says that in Judges chapter 2, quote, there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or what he had done for Israel. And so when Joshua died, not every nation was expelled from the land. And the Bible says that God kept some of those nations in the land to, quote, test Israel by them. And Abraham's offspring failed the test. The Bible says they abandoned the Lord and they went after other gods. And so instead of having permanent peace and blessing in the land, the kingdom knew then just wickedness and war. So the book of Judges is like watching reruns of a really bad show over and over and over again. Kind of like when we were young, you turn on Nick at Night and you watch really bad shows over and over and over. That's like the book of Judges. The book of Judges is like Nick at Night. Does Nick at Night still exist anymore? Anyways, don't tweet me on that. But it is like watching a rerun of a really bad show over and over again. The same depressing pattern, repeating itself over and over, one generation after another. And part of Israel's problem was a failure in generational discipleship. Beloved, these are good lessons for us as parents and as a church, isn't it? We are always one generation away from forgetting and forsaking God's Word. But that wasn't Israel's only problem. Abraham's offspring also suffered a lack of cohesive leadership. You see, the Mosaic Covenant gave them covenant demands, commands that they had to obey. It was a demand for loyalty, but it provided no covenant head. Well, the book of Judges clues us into this problem. And it clues us in by a repeated phrase in chapter 17, 18, 19, and 21. And I'll quote, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. In other words, since no one man stood in the place of the many, the many did whatever they wanted. God's covenant people needed a covenant head. The kingdom needed a king, one man to keep the demands of the Mosaic Covenant 
so that the nation might enjoy the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant in the land. And so what then was the context of the Davidic covenant? Well, we've seen here that it's Abrahamic promises. It's also Mosaic problems. But I'm going to add a third that's not in your outline. That from Exodus all the way through Judges, there were Mosaic problems. And these Mosaic problems were only made worse when you get to 1 Samuel. And it's there that we're confronted with a third P, not promises, not problems, but preferences. Specifically, the people's preference. It's good alliteration, isn't it? You know you got the ghost when you're alliterating like that. No teaching on the Davidic covenant should overlook the fact that David was not Israel's first king. That when the pages turn from the book of Judges through Ruth to 1 Samuel, Abraham's offspring again is being oppressed by a foreign power in the land. So like generations before them, they cry out. Only this time, they cry out, not for the Lord to raise up a judge to save them. They want to appoint a king to fight for them. But Samuel was hesitant. It was God's prophet in the land, the chief prophet. The Lord was supposed to be their king. Not a human king. The Lord who redeemed them was their king. And by asking for a king, Israel forgot God's promise of royalty to Abraham. And they looked to the world for lessons in leadership. They wanted a king that looked a whole lot like the other guys. Coincidentally, is this a temptation, a common temptation for God's people? To reject the authority and the sufficiency of God's word and to look to the world's wisdom instead to run our lives? There's nothing new under the sun. God's people have always been tempted to reject God's word for the world's wisdom. And that's exactly what the kingdom did. So Samuel warned them. He said, listen, if you choose a king that's like the nations, then you're going to end up just like the nations. You will end up reflecting what you revere. Your king will not be a king who loves you. He will not be a man who gives himself over for you. But he will be a man, 1 Samuel 8, that will take and take and take some more. He's not a giver. He's a taker. But again, the kingdom, just like they did all throughout the book of Judges, did what was right in their own eyes. So as an act of fatherly discipline, he gave them over to their desires. God told Samuel, go ahead, give them what they want. And so the people... What they ultimately wanted was a tall, handsome, kingly Benjaminite named Saul. And like most worldly schemes, Saul appeared successful at first. Things were going pretty well at first. But Samuel's warnings eventually came true. Saul was proud and selfish. He erected monuments to himself and he flaunted God's law. And at the same time, God led Samuel behind the scenes and kind of back channels to quietly anoint a ruddy boy from Judah named David. And David was a man after God's own heart. And then later on, as Israel's giant killing champion, he would become a man after the kingdom's heart. David would steal the nation's heart away from Saul and take it for himself. 
And so from jealousy, Saul tried to kill God's anointed one, not once, not twice, but multiple times, on more than one occasion, firing a spear and missing, because Abraham throws like a four-year-old girl, or rather, Saul does. David's just too quick, and he manages to escape, and yet the lesson remains the same, that Saul has aligned himself with the serpent seed through the ages. That serpent seed that had been trying to kill off God's anointed one, the promised seed, ever since Cain killed Abel. The war rages on. And so God, by the end of 1 Samuel, takes away Saul's throne. Even though Saul doesn't give it away quickly, he reluctantly holds on to it. And so God, at the end of 1 Samuel, ends up killing off Saul in humiliating fashion. And his death was a public reminder of the curses of the Mosaic Covenant, that the wages of sin are death. But when we turn the page from 1 Samuel to 2 Samuel, which is where your Bible should be now, we discover that, through the, that even though the scepter has departed from the house of Saul, the scepter has not departed from Judah. God has kept His promise. His royal promise to Abraham, repeated to Jacob, spoken over Judah. Now here we are a millennia later, a thousand years Tell me something about God's patience compared to ours. An old pastor of mine once said, God created time, but men created watches. How tempted would you have been as a nation to grow impatient with God's promises as one century turned to another century, turned to another century, to close to a millennia, and we don't see no king coming from Judah. Do you think you might be tempted to doubt God's Word, to reject its authority and truthfulness and sufficiency, to question God's faithfulness? Well, that's just what they did, and yet God proved faithful. God's royal promises are finally fulfilled. The king has arrived. Well, upon David's ascension, as we just read in 2 Samuel 7, God makes a covenant with David. And now, having considered the context of the covenant with Abrahamic promises and Mosaic problems and the people's preferences, we turn our attention now to the character of the covenant. And that's going to include its parties, its promises, its demands, and its threats. We've just read 2 Samuel 7, so we're not going to read it again, but I do want to draw your attention to a handful of things that are important, because three covenant promises stand out. They jump off the page especially between verses 8 and 17. First, and most foundationally, notice in verse 16 that we see the promise of a permanent throne, that the kingship of Israel isn't going to be made by the people's preference, but by God's promise. David's house, David's kingdom, and David's throne, a threefold promise, just like God gave to Abraham. Land, seed, and blessing are all coming your way. And now again, he gives a threefold promise to Abraham's descendant, David. You are going to have a house, a kingdom, and a throne, and it will, he says in verse 16, be made sure forever. 
The stability of the Davidic throne was going to be foundational to the stability of the entire nation. As the king goes, so goes the kingdom. Which leads us to a second blessing. The goal of David's permanent throne was ultimately a prosperous land. It was a prosperous land. Look at verses 10 and 11. There we see God promising rest and security for Israel. And I want you to remember that rest and prosperity in the land of Canaan was a blessing of the Mosaic Covenant. That if people kept the Mosaic Covenant, if they obeyed God and His demands for loyalty, the people would then enjoy the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant in the land of peace and of blessing in this land flowing with milk and honey, that God would be their God and they would be his people. We saw this realized particularly under Joshua's leadership, didn't we? That when he led the people in the conquest of Canaan, we see it in bits and pieces all during that and then during the times of the judges. But now... What God is saying in his covenant to David is it's now going to be fulfilled for the entire nation, not just a tribe here or a tribe there, not just in bits and pieces, but for the entire nation. Well, let me tell you what this doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that Israel isn't ever going to be threatened or attacked in the land. It doesn't mean that Israel is not going to face hardship or threats and tests. But what it does mean is that God will bless Faithful kings in their defense of the nation. That's why David sung in Psalm 144, Blessed be the Lord my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. He is my steadfast love and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield, and he in whom I take refuge who subdues people under me. David's language in the psalm of the Lord being my rock, of him being my steadfast love and my fortress and my shield, that kind of language arises ultimately from a third and final covenant promise that we see here in 2 Samuel 7, and that is the promise of God's abiding presence. So we have seen a permanent throne, we've seen the promise of a prosperous people in the land, and now we see thirdly and finally a present God. Look at verse 9. God said, I've been with you. All along he's been with David. David can attribute his ascendancy to the throne and of his anointing to the kingship by nothing other than God's abiding presence with him. And in verse 13, notice that God promised that one of David's descendants is going to build a house for God's presence. And then in verse 15, God promised that his covenant love would not depart from David's descendants. God's going to dwell with them in a house, and that will be a sign of God's covenant love to David's descendants for generation after generation. David's household will enjoy God's presence and God's protection. And so at the heart of the Davidic covenant then is the temple, a place where God's manifested glory would dwell in the midst of his people. But David won't be the one to build it. Why? Elsewhere, the Bible says it is because of his sin against Bathsheba, and First Chronicles 28, because he was a man of war that shed too much blood. He was a bloody king already. 
His hands were too stained with blood to build such a pure place. No, instead, God says here in 2 Samuel 7, the temple is going to be built by David's son. Not a man of war, but a man of peace, a shalom man, which is exactly what the name Solomon means. So many years later, in 1 Kings 6, Solomon builds the temple. He's about to, rather, just as God promised he would. And God repeated these Davidic promises again to Solomon. This is what he said. I will dwell among the children of Israel, and I will not forsake my people. Under Solomon, King David's son, all the promises and the blessings of God delivered to Abraham, Moses, and David would find their earthly fulfillment. It was the golden age of Israel's kingship. It was the high point of the Old Testament. 1 Kings 6, 7, and 8, with the building and the blessing of the temple. But none of it would last. Nor could it. Because the earthly fulfillment of all of these earthly promises in King David's son ultimately anticipated an ultimate spiritual fulfillment in King David's greater son, the greater Shalom man, a prince of peace, who would reign on David's throne in righteousness forever. Everything that we're seeing playing out in Israel by the kingship is a pattern. It's a three-dimensional prophecy of a greater work that God will yet do in Christ. And in that way, we see God's promised covenant of grace, first revealed in the garden through that first gospel, further revealed to Abraham in the types and shadows of the Mosaic covenant, now here further revealed in God's covenant to David. Well, what about the conditions? We've seen royal promises, a permanent throne, a prosperous people, and a present God. But we see that the covenant also in 2 Samuel 7 contains royal demands. And attached to all these demands would be sanctions to guarantee their fulfillment. We'll get to those in just a minute. And the demands of the covenant are threefold. You can follow along in your outline. That David and his offspring were to, first of all, guard God's house. They were to keep God's law, and they were to represent God's people. Let's just consider each one of those quickly. We see there in verse 13 that David's son would build a house for God's name. And so just like Adam in the garden was commissioned to build and to guard God's garden sanctuary, so now God's king was responsible to build a sanctuary where God would dwell with his people and where his people would ultimately worship and serve God. The king wasn't a priest, but guarding the purity of God's worship and of God's dwelling place, just like Adam in the garden, was to be his utmost concern that he was to wage war against anything unclean coming close to God's holy place. He was the protector of the sanctuary. And so the king is, first of all, responsible to guard God's house. But secondly, he does so by keeping God's law. The Mosaic law, 
which we see in Exodus, Leviticus, Number, and Deuteronomy, anticipated the fulfillment of God's royal promise by making laws for the kings that didn't yet exist. So Deuteronomy 17, for instance, commanded Israel's king, would-be king, king that won't come for yet centuries later, commanded Israel's kings to copy the law of God in its entirety and to read it all the days of his life. It's like demanding that the president of the United States, I know he's not a king, don't come after me, take the Bible, copy it down word for word, and meditate on it every single day. That's what the king was demanded to do. And so the king was over Israel, but he was ultimately under God. He was both a sovereign and a servant. He had the authority to enforce God's word, but he did not have the authority to add to it or to subtract from it. In other words, Israel's king doesn't create the law. He keeps it. And when the king obeys, God promises that he will bless him. But look at verse 14. If the king disobeys God's law, then God will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. So kings are commanded to guard God's house and to keep God's law. These were the commands of the covenant. And in these ways, David and his offspring were to function as Israel's legal representatives before God in the world. And that's the third Davidic condition. Guard God's house, keep God's law, and represent God's people. I want you to remember that federal headship is an important part of covenants in the Bible. Every covenant has a covenant head. One person representing everybody else in that covenant. Every covenant had one. Adam was the head of the covenant of works, and he was the one standing in the place of all of humanity. Noah for the Noahic covenant, Abraham for the Abrahamic covenant, but the Mosaic covenant to date did not have a covenant head. It wasn't Moses. Moses was the covenant mediator, but he wasn't the covenant head. That one important function ultimately falls upon the Davidic line. David and his kingly offspring would represent God's people in the land. And if the kings did what was right in the sight of the Lord, right? That's a phrase that we see repeated in First and Second Kings and in First and Second Chronicles. If they do what is right in the sight of the Lord, if they guard God's house and they keep God's law, the kingdom would know peace and blessing in the land. But if the kings, quote, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. If they failed to guard God's house and they failed to obey God's law, then the kingdom would be cursed by war and wickedness in the land. As the king goes, so goes the kingdom. And so God here, to ensure the king's obedience to the covenant, we see applies at least two sanctions. Now, remember, I've told you, promises are just promises. Commands are just commands. What ultimately turns promises and commands into a covenant are sanctions or threats. And I've already hinted at them. The sanctions of the covenant are twofold. It is discipline. We saw that there in verse 14. And it is disinheritance. 
And so we just saw, as I said in verse 14, that God will have a kind of special father-son relationship to the king. That if the king guards God's house and he keeps God's law, God will protect him and watch over him and he will fight for him. But if the king breaks covenant, God will discipline him and he will punish him. Not only that, but since the king represents the kingdom, the one for the many, God would ultimately discipline the whole nation for the king's sins. Just turn to your right. I want you to see something in 1 Kings chapter 9. And it's there that we see our second covenant curse. Not just discipline, but disinheritance. 1 Kings chapter 9. Beginning in verse 4. We'll begin in verse 3. And the Lord said to Solomon, I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I've commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever." Just as I promised David your father, saying, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and you do not keep my commandments or my statutes that I've set before you, but you go and serve other gods and worship them, here it is, verse 7, I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them. And the house that I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight, and Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. They're going to be the butt of the joke. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss, and they will say, why has the Lord done thus to the land and to this house? And then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold of other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. The rest is history, as they say. Solomon broke covenant. His sons divided the kingdom and plunged Israel into civil war. Even in discipline, yet God remained faithful to his promise to David, and he put other Davidic offspring on David's throne, and some were, were better than others. Some did what was right in the Lord's eyes, and yet still many did what was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And ultimately, this cycle of kingly disobedience continues on and on and on until the people's wickedness reached its tipping point under the wicked king Manasseh. And the Lord says in 2 Kings 23, that's it. I'm done. I will remove Judah out of my sight, and I will cast off this city that I have chosen, Jerusalem, and the house of which I said, my name shall be there. As the kings go, so goes the kingdom. God put one king after another on David's throne, and none of them proved to be the king. Collectively, they failed to guard God's house. Collectively, 
They failed to obey God's law. So God's house was destroyed and God's people were taken out of the land, just as God said he would do. And of all of these ways, beloved, we see that the old covenant ultimately proved insufficient. The law was powerless to do what God demanded the people do. It was powerless to change hearts. But even this was according to God's eternal purpose, so that his covenant of grace might one day be fully revealed. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews 8 says, for if that first covenant had been faultless, if it had been faultless, sufficient, there would have been no occasion to look for a second one, a better one, a new one. And that leads us to our third and final point. That is the Christ of the covenant. I've shown you the context for the covenant. I've showed you the character of the covenant. But now I want to bring us all the way home to the Christ of the covenant. And from the Davidic covenant, I want to show you the king promised, the king predicted, and the king produced. Remember that big picture that I've been painting in recent weeks. That when God promised Abraham offspring in the land of Canaan, he initiated Israel's kingdom through Israel's covenants. The old covenant, which was initiated in Abraham, expanded under Moses, and then narrowed through a single individual in David, progressively unfolded God's promised covenant of grace, revealed it further and further as if taking farther steps toward its final revelation in the new covenant. And this is a covenant that is ultimately centered on that serpent-crushing seed of the woman who will be a kingly, nations-blessing offspring of Abraham. That's what we've been looking at. 30,000-foot-high view, that's what we've considered over the last few weeks. And all of these covenants are ultimately what the Apostle Paul refers to in Romans 9 and in Ephesians 2 as, quote, the covenants of promise. They weren't ends in themselves. They looked beyond themselves to something greater. And they're called covenants of promise because that was their ultimate purpose, to promise something, to prefigure something better than itself. Here's what I mean. Broadly speaking... The entire kingdom of Israel and all of its covenants were typical. T-Y-P-I-C-A-L. It's a type. A type is a pattern of something greater, a shadow that reflects uh, the substance. That's why the, the writer in Hebrews 10 says that the law was a shadow of the good things to come, but was not the true form of those things. It was merely a shadow. So if I hold up my hand and, and, and the guys in the back were to shine a light and you see my hand, oh, oh, just like you do there, you would look at that and go, that's a hand. And yet at the same time, it's not a hand, is it? It points to a greater reality. You can look at the shadow and know what it is, even though that thing is not the thing. Does that make sense? And that's what the old covenant was. The exodus was a shadow of a greater deliverance, of a greater exodus. The Passover was a shadow of a greater passing over and of a greater Passover lamb. 
The land of Canaan was a shadow of a greater land, not just a smaller land, but of a whole world, a new heavens and a new earth. The sacrificial system was a shadow of a greater sacrifice. The priestly lineage was a shadow of a greater high priest who would willingly offer himself and his one offering would be sufficient and perfect, better than the blood of any bulls or goats. And the victories and the triumphs of David and the kings that followed were a shadow of King David's greater son. In all of this, the progress of the old covenant from Abraham to Moses all narrows then on one person that is the son of David, the Messiah. So when we zoom out then, the entire old covenant revealed and promised the kingdom of the Messiah. It says, you want to know what the kingdom of Christ is going to look like? Then you can see it in the types and shadows of the old covenant. We're giving you clues and hints, three-dimensional prophecies of that glorious heavenly people, of that better covenant, and of that better king. And so with all that in mind, then, I want you to consider how God's covenant with David not only predicted the king but ultimately produced the king. Not only prefigured the king, but ultimately produced the king. That throughout the Old Testament, and especially in the Psalms and the prophets, Israel's hope was implied through the title, Anointed One. You see it all over the Psalms. You see it in the prophets. Anointed One literally means Messiah. It was the most... The title was most often associated with Israel's kings, the Davidic kings. And so God's king was, in a lowercase m sense, Israel's Messiah. That's why the psalmist says, Psalm 18, Great salvation the Lord brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and to his offspring forever. And so the Psalms focus then the hope of the old covenant on a single righteous king, an anointed one. And so Psalm 1, for example, tells us who this righteous man is. Psalm 2, which should always be coupled with Psalm 1, reveals that the righteous man of Psalm 1 is ultimately the Davidic king, God's anointed one. Later on in Psalm 132, the psalmist unites all of these concepts. And I want you to just listen to God's word, Psalm 132. Listen to what the psalmist says. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back that one of the sons of your body... I will set on your throne. And if your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. The kingdom's present hope for blessing and joy in the land were wrapped up in David's offspring on David's throne. But despite all their expectations and despite all of their hopes, no king proved to be the king. That despite expectations, David's offspring kept on sinning, and they kept on dying, and they kept on staying dead. 
until there were no more earthly kings for Israel to hope in. So here's the question. Did God's promises fail? This is the tension that the psalmist is openly wrestling with in Psalm 89. Did God's promises to David fail? Turn with me to Psalm 89 because you've got to see this. Psalm 89. It's a long psalm. We're not going to be able to look at all of it. We're just going to scan through it. I want to pull a few things out. First of all, Psalm 89 is an exilic psalm, maybe even a post-exilic psalm. That's why you see in the subscript that it was written by Ethan, the Ezraite. The book of Ezra was all about Israel's return, wasn't it, from captivity, So we're talking the other side of Jerusalem being destroyed, of the kings and the nation being deported. That's what Psalm 89 is all about. And it's referring to the ongoing failure of the Davidic kings. Their covenant failures are what ultimately led to Judah's exile to Babylon. And I want you, just quickly, I want you to see and I want you to feel the tension between God's promise and the psalmist's experience. Begin by just scanning through the first two-thirds of the psalm. And I want you to take note as you do, how often is David mentioned? We see him there in verse 3. We see him explicitly mentioned also there. Don't we? In verse 20, he's mentioned again later on in verse 35. But then you notice how often he's implicitly mentioned by that pronoun, him, 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 him. This whole psalm has to do with God's promises to David. He's reflecting on the promise that God made to establish David's throne forever. But I want you to notice the shift in verse 38. The hopeful words of the previous verses of enduring forever, established forever, give way to a dark cloud. They're just swallowed up. You have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. The king has failed. So the words beginning here in verse 38 all the way through 45 as you scan through that seem like an accusation. That when the psalmist is interpreting God's promises through his experiences in exile, he's concluding that God's promises, his royal promises must have failed. Beloved, is that ever possible for us? That when we interpret God's promises through our own experiences, especially in bitter providence... When hard things come our way, can we be tempted then to draw judgments on who God is and what He has sworn to do for His people based on our own experiences? Listen, Satan is no respecter of persons, and he will whisper into our ears in our darkest and our most weary moments and say to us, just as he said to Adam and Eve in the garden, But did God really say? Did he really say? Can you really trust him? Are his promises really true? And if they are, why are you still waiting on him day after day after day? 
Can that ever happen to us? That was what's going on with the psalmist in 38. He feels that tension of trying to make sense of God's promises through his own personal experience. Israel cannot hope in God's anointed one in the present tense because there are no more Davidic kings. Jerusalem was destroyed. King Zedekiah was hauled off to Babylon. His sons were either killed or they had their eyes gouged out. The would-be kings would never return and they would never see Jerusalem again, literally. And so the psalmist cries out then in verse 46. You see that there? How long? Look at verse 49. Lord, where? The lingering question at the end of Psalm 89 is this. What of your promises? Where is your anointed? Where is our promised king? If your promises are true, where is he? Psalm 89, the tension, the darkness, the heartbreak is what provides the context for the ministry and the message of Israel's prophets in the Old Testament. That when Israel was on the brink of exile, Isaiah prophesied of the, quote, root of Jesse, a king who would one day come from Judah and would sit on David's throne. And unlike all the kingly failures that went before him that died and that stayed dead, this king's rule will never end. His government will increase without opposition. His name will be Emmanuel, God with us, and his royal titles will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. He is the greater Shalom Man. Isaiah says, God's royal promise to Abraham and David have not failed. There may be no king in Jerusalem, but the promises haven't failed. The king is coming. Wait on the Lord. While in captivity, God sends the prophet Jeremiah to preach the exact same gospel that Isaiah preached, the same good news. And the Lord said that one day Jeremiah preached that the Lord is going to cause a righteous branch to spring up from David who will execute justice and righteousness forever. God is not reneged on his promises to David. The king will come, is the message of the prophets. You may not see him, and he may not come in your lifetime, but he will come, and he will rescue his people, and he will fight for us, and he will rule over us in justice forever. He's coming. Wait on the Lord. The King is coming. It's that prophetic message that makes the opening words of the New Testament so explosive. Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The purpose of the old covenant was to produce the new covenant. Because the purpose of the old covenant, according to God's promise to David, was to produce the Messiah. And that leads me to my final point. We've considered the Christ promised. We've considered the Christ prefigured. But now we get to glory in the Christ 
produced. Most common way of conceiving of Jesus as the promised Messiah in the New Testament was in Davidic terms. That all of the New Testament apostles, the writers of the New Testament, understood that Jesus is the Messiah because he is the true son of David. And they say it over and over and over again, dozens of different ways and hundreds of different places. For instance, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is most commonly referred to as, quote, the son of David. Both Matthew and Luke trace Jesus' genealogy back through David to Abraham. In fact, Luke even goes all the way back to Adam, to that original promised covenant of grace that in both the that in both Matthew and in Luke, the message is the same. The serpent-crushing, nation-blessing, kingly offspring has arrived, and his name is Jesus. And then time and time again, not just in the Gospels, but even in the book of Acts, Luke records the apostles preaching Christ as the Messiah in the line of David. Paul preached this in Acts chapter 13. God raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David a son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do my will. And of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, just as he promised. The apostles look at Jesus in light of the Davidic covenant. And whereas the prophets all the way up to John the Baptist said, the king is coming. The apostles are saying, the king has come. And his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one in whom all of the promises of God find their yes and amen. That's why similarly in the opening letter of his or in the opening of his letter to the church in Rome, the Apostle Paul writes this, that the Lord Jesus Christ was, quote, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and then was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Toward the end of his ministry, Paul wrote to his pastoral protege, Timothy, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Paul understood God's royal promises first given to Abraham and specified to David to be the very heart of the gospel. That is why... The New Testament says that the gospel was preached to Abraham all the way back then, and they centered on a kingly promise. Kings will come from you. They'll come from Judah through David to the ultimate offspring of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the very heart of the gospel. In the very back of your Bibles in the book of Revelation, Jesus then reveals himself to be, to John, the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David. Jesus is saying, I possess the key to the kingdom. I have all authority in heaven and on earth because I'm the promised Davidic king. A couple chapters later, Revelation 5, the heavenly elders proclaim, weep no more. No more Psalm 89. No more tension. No more weeping. Why? It says, behold, the lion of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. Oh, that's good. In one verse, 
John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, takes the royal promise to Abraham in Genesis 17. He couples it with the royal promise in Genesis 49. And then he takes those things specified in 2 Samuel 17. And he says, don't cry anymore. The king has come and he has conquered. Sin, death, and the devil. You have nothing left to fear. My stepfather is dying. Kathy's helping my mom right now. And before she left, I wrote down on a piece of paper, folded it up, put it in an envelope for her to give to Butch. And all it said was fear not. Your forerunner has gone before you. He has conquered. Do not fear. Don't weep. The Lion of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered. And then finally, in the last chapter, Revelation 22, Jesus proclaims this about himself. He says, I, Jesus. Isn't it amazing? Whatever you find at the end of a book is always the most significant aspect of a book. It's the capstone of everything that's gone before it. And he says, I, Jesus, am the root and the descendant of David. I am the bright morning star. I'm the Messiah. I am Him. I am the one that your hearts have been longing for and waiting for, and I have come, and I am coming again. Amen? And in these and many, many, many more, we find in the New Testament a portrait of Jesus as the true and better son of Abraham. He's the Davidic king who never added or took anything away from God's word he perfectly obeyed the law and exhausted all of its curses on behalf of Abraham's spiritual offspring. He is the true Davidic king who not only obeyed God's law, but conquered God's enemies by dying, then rising again, destroying the one who has the power of death and delivering all of his people who are in bondage to sin and death. He is the true Davidic king who builds and guards God's house, the church, in whom God's presence dwells and will dwell forever. And as the perfectly righteous head of the covenant of grace, every Abrahamic blessing comes through Christ the King to us, his kingdom people, that is the indwelling Holy Spirit, righteousness that comes by faith, and the inheritance of a new creation. And since the Lord Jesus Christ has been exalted the right hand of the Father to the throne of majesty on high and sits on David's throne now forever, those blessings, beloved, listen to me, those blessings can never cease and we can never be disinherited because we have a king who can never be defeated and who can never, ever, ever, ever fail. He will keep us safe to the end. That's our king. Let's pray.